We're so glad you're with us today. If this is your first time here at Calvary Chapel, welcome. This morning we'd like to take a break from the current series that we are working through called Goodbye God, addressing some of the issues in that series that our skeptical friends may have concerning Christianity. And I want to break away for this day to talk about family matters. Family matters. Have you ever come home and maybe your parent looked at you when you were a kid and said, when your father gets home, we're going to have a family meeting. Nobody else? <laughs> Is that only me? <laughs> or you come home to your spouse after she's been with the children all day. Honey, after dinner, we're going to have a family meeting. We've got to discuss some things that affect the entire family. Because we have matters that must be addressed Things that must be dealt with. Things that must be explained. We have been asked time and time again to address family matters here at church. And our original approach to that was to work through the Bible as we have to allow people to see God's Word unfold before them and see as God instructs as we come to portions of Scripture that deal with the family to let it naturally unfold so the individual can see it, learn it, and apply it for themselves. Today I believe we have to get a little bit more specific. We have to address the issue a little bit more directly because family matters to God. Do you understand that the Bible claims that God designed the family? That's what the Word of God tells us. He has given us a complete architectural picture of how the family is meant to function in His Word that would allow the family to enjoy the blessings that He provides. But like any design, if it is changed in any way, there are repercussions. Now, some may feel that the family may be redesigned and it have no repercussions or better repercussions. But from everything that I have learned about the Bible, God creates things perfect. And you cannot perfect perfection. You cannot augment it. You cannot supplement it. You cannot add to it, change it in any way without demeaning it, damaging it, and possibly even destroying it. Today we are being asked to reconsider families. We are being asked to reconsider marriages. How do we respond in the light of our convictions that the Bible has clearly taught on these subjects? I believe that it begins not with dealing with all of the issues, the symptomatic issues that are abroad, but it begins with the foundational issue that we have lost. Every family should be built on a foundation. The foundation is so important to anything else that occurs as the family is being built over time. 
And as long as that foundation is strong and capable of supporting the family design and dynamic, the family will be strong. I think all of us know practically how important a foundation is to any structural design. This week, my wife and I went downtown to have an evening together. And as we were sitting outside one of our favorite restaurants, surrounded by the skyscrapers there in downtown Chicago, as I looked up, I could see the Sears Tower. Yes, I know the name has been changed, but I'm a little rebellious. Okay. The Sears Tower is close to 1,500 feet tall, 110 stories. But what very few people know or understand about the Sears Tower, and of course, today we know it as the Willis Tower. I'm giving in to those who like to be politically correct here at church. Is that the foundation goes 100 feet down into the ground. Now that might not seem a lot to you in proportion to how high the building is. But understand that underneath the Sears Tower, there is a 10-story building, a foundation of 10 stories high that is supporting the entire structure. That foundation was key because our city is known for a certain weather anomaly. And that weather anomaly is what? The city's called it the Windy City. That's correct. And it blows down there, doesn't it? You're on the lake shore or you're walking down Michigan Avenue and it can come out of nowhere. But have you ever been to the top of the Sears Tower on the observation deck on a windy day? You have to take Dramamine before you go up there. You're swaying. All you need is music and you'd have a dance party. You can't believe how much that building moves. Do you know how much that building moves? 12 to 18 feet in each direction. Think about that as you're standing up there. If you are like my daughter and believes in tempting the Lord and walking out on one of those observational platforms that you can look straight down to your peril and death, <laughs> along with the swaying back and forth, you know what that's called? Faith. Yeah. How thankful are you that that foundation is 10 stories deep? How grateful are you that you're secure in the building? For wind resistance purposes, that's why the building was staggered in the way it was, and that's why it has the architectural design that it has. It's phenomenal to consider. And it also that it was built in the 1970s. It's phenomenal to consider. The foundation is so important to everything that you do. I believe that all of our families need a foundation to build themselves upon. Now what you choose to lay that foundation upon is the choice that we have to confront and decide and make maybe today. Jesus knew all about foundations. In fact, he made it abundantly clear at the end of one of the greatest sermons ever spoken. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. You know it as the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that sermon, if you'd like to turn there with me, you will discover that Jesus 
concludes this sermon with an application. And in that application, there is a warning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And let's read this together to understand how important a foundation is, not only to the life of the individual, but to the health and the stability of the family. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 24. At the end of this sermon, this is how our Lord and Savior concludes. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, wrapping up everything that he said in the previous three chapters, and does them, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is an incredibly descriptive passage concerning the importance of a foundation. And Jesus is saying that every individual life is built upon a foundation. And he classifies the two type of people, and there are only two. One is wise and one is foolish. The wise man is one who takes what he knows, acts upon it, and applies it to his life. The foolish is not a term of uh, disrespect or demeaning of someone. Foolish means in this word, in the Greek, it simply means someone who knows what to do and yet does not do it. We call them teenagers. (laughs) One who knows what to do and does not do it. Foolish. Both heard what Jesus had to say. Both built a house for themselves. Both acted in different ways based upon what they had just heard. Both were identified, one as wise, one as foolish. But the most important fact here is to know that both of them faced the same storms. And the outcome was completely different. One house stood, the other house fell. If you notice the way Jesus displayed it for us and described it for us, is that each individual built something, a home. It is referencing a life, the individual's life. They both built. One built on sand, the other one built on the rock. One house stood, the other fell. Both experienced the storms. That tells me a lot right there. That the wise man who heard and did what Jesus said was likened to a man who builds his house upon the rock and when the storms come. The foolish man was like the man who hears the words of the Lord and does not act upon them. And the storms come. What is the same in both cases? The storms came. Notice how Jesus describes these storms. Rain falling from heaven. 
The floods coming up from beneath us and the wind blowing against us. The rain pounding and pressure uh, building against that home. But both the wise and the foolish are going through the same experiences. All of us know that have been married for any length of period of time is that the trials of life come, don't they? As much as you want to hope you, want, you can avoid them and try to be as proactive as you possibly can, the trials of life still come. And when they come, they often feel like they're coming from every direction, don't they? It's not just one difficulty at a time that we have to deal with. It's many coming from above, coming from below, coming from the side in every direction. But the key is, because the individual who was wise was proactive to build upon the words of the Lord, building his house upon the teachings of Christ, when those storms in life came, the house stood. The foolish person, on the other hand, experienced the exact same storms, but he could not weather them. The house was not strong enough to withstand them, and the family crumbled. That is the contrast that we should see. Because we know storms are going to come. But if we've built our house on the foundation of the Lord, we will be able to weather those storms. We'll be able to deal with them. It'll be difficult. It'll be hard. But that's when we rely on the promise that he says, I'll never leave you. I never will forsake you. I'll be with you always. And even though you're going through the troubles of life, understand that all things work to good to those who love me and are called according to my, to my purpose. I'm working in it all. But they're going to come. Now the other, unfortunately, when the floods came, the rain fell and the wind blew, great was the fall of the house. It is so difficult to see a family end Divided, being ripped apart, being torn apart by the circumstances that they find themselves in because they don't have a foundation in which they can weather those things. And so they're confronted with them. And they try to endure them in and of themselves when they find out that they're limited, completely limited, I should say, and in their ability to respond They don't have it in them. They dig deeper and deeper. They apply the ideas of this world, and yet it's not enough. It still lacks. And great is the fall. Great is the fall of that house. Now there's something I need to bring to all of your attention. You may ask, why wouldn't you do what the wise man did? Well, I'll tell you why. It's difficult. It's difficult to do what the wise man did. There's a cultural aspect that I want you to understand that really gives us context to these words. In that region in which Jesus was speaking, when houses were being built, understand that many of the houses that were being built were by men who were betrothed to women who went off to build a house, and when the house was completed, they could then go back for their betrothed wife and bring her to the new house. 
And what was happening in that culture was this. Individuals just didn't want to take the time to do it right. They didn't want to go through the difficulties of doing it right. And what were those difficulties? To securely foundation a house in that area, you had to dig very deeply to get to true bedrock because there was a clay that was very similar in look and feel as bedrock, but the moment the clay got saturated with water, it would just fall apart. So you had to dig deeper, and it took more time, and it was more difficult. But yet many went the easy way. They just dug down deep enough. They thought, okay, this is it. It looks good. I'm going to start building. And they build it, and it looks good, and it's functional. And they go back. They get their wife. They start their family. But then the storms come. Then the storms come. And because he cut corners at the beginning, it didn't weather the storm. It's difficult to lay the foundation the way God would have us to lay it. It is countercultural. In many ways, it is going just in the opposite direction of everybody else. But Jesus says it will weather the storm. You got to dig deeper, you got to place it on the rock, you got to do due diligence to make it secure. And so many were unwilling to do that. I like what one wrote. In conclusion to this text, he said, But here is an application we sometimes miss. The storm came to both lives. The wind beat on both houses. The rain poured on both building sites. The man who was wise and careful chose a stable foundation. He got hit with the same hurricane force winds as the man who foolishly took shortcuts and didn't bother to plan ahead. In light of this, where I am going this morning is this. What have you built your family upon? And the title of my message this morning is Family Matters Foundations. When my wife and I got married, we were Christians when we were dating. We went through a time with my pastor, as he took us through some premarital counseling to help prepare us for what we could experience next. But one of the things that my wife and I knew as believers in Jesus Christ is that if we didn't want to repeat some of the difficulties that I personally experienced in my family upbringing, I would need a foundation that is superior to myself. So we began to search the scriptures to find verses that would be our family's foundation. And this morning I want to bring you to one that I think is ultimately important that all of us consider. It is found in the book of Joshua. It is found in the 24th chapter. It's a decision that Joshua articulates for us that we have made one of our pillar foundations for our family. And that is found in the 15th verse, the latter portion, where Joshua makes this incredible declaration, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That became the foundation to our family. 
But as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Undoubtedly, we don't have time to go through the entire book of Joshua, but we find ourselves in the 24th chapter at the end of Joshua's life. The successor to Moses, the one who had brought the children of Israel into the land in which God has promised them from the very day they left their bondage there in Egypt. But Joshua knew that the horizon wasn't as clear as he would hope it would be. For the people that came out of the land of Egypt, as you know, many of them died in the wilderness because they did not believe and trust God. Now this group of people with Joshua is confronted with the reality that they must remain loyal to God. Joshua couldn't make that decision for them. He couldn't control them. He couldn't go on with them. But Joshua makes this declaration right here at this point that's a declaration that my wife and I chose to make at the very beginning of our marriage. If you've been to our house, you will find this verse in various places around the home because it is foundational. Joshua knew that a decision had to be made. Were we going to remain, were they going to remain loyal to the Lord, their God, who saw them out of the bondages of Egypt and even before that, creating a nation out of Abraham himself? Would they remain faithful to that God or would they be persuaded by the gods of their forefathers, by the gods of Egypt or the gods of the Amorites, the individuals they displaced as God brought them into the promised land? And Joshua said, choose this day. Read with me in verse 14. Joshua states at this point in the closing words of his final address, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve God, the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then he adds this incredible declaration statement. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I find that in the farewell addresses or in the final words of any writer of the Bible, we discover some of the most pertinent thinking. Some of those things, we discover those things that are really important to them. I, I want you to know this before I leave. As Paul wrote to Timothy, as Peter wrote his second letter, as Jesus went to the, the night before he went to the cross, I want you to know these things, warning us. Asking us to be careful, be cautious. Asking us to consider, asking us to choose. And that's what we see here with Joshua. Choose this day. Decide what you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now Joshua appears to already know that some of them were worshiping some of these gods in secret. And he knew that it was only a matter of time that if that continued, that it would permeate through the entire people and turn God against them for their idolatry. 
But I love what he says here. In the light of the populace, and I think this is the position that we have to adopt today. In the light of the populace, I don't care what anybody else does, I'm going to serve the Lord. I don't care what anybody else says, I'm going to serve the Lord. That kind of resolve, that kind of purpose that we find in this statement. Because Joshua knew that it wasn't going to be military conquest that destroyed the society. It was going to be the corruption from within. And as God turned against his people, promising to bring about the curses in which he laid out there in the book of Deuteronomy against them, if they would turn from him. It is interesting that many today call America the new Roman Empire. I think that's interesting. It's also pretty scary to know that the Roman Empire wasn't defeated militarily. It eroded from the inside. The corruption was at such levels that there was no cohesiveness. And consensus could no longer be obtained amongst the senators there in the Roman pantheon. It was impossible. Because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. What a parallel. And unfortunately, I ask the question, do we see that occurring today? as we begin to manipulate the design that God has created and allowing five people to say that it's okay. But I like what one person said, the true Supreme Court is in heaven. I want to look at this verse with you together in verse 14, and I want to pick it apart just a little bit. It begins with a statement that I think we have lost almost completely here in our time and in our culture together, and that is the fear of the Lord. We don't know what that means anymore. We don't know what that means any longer. It is not a fear of terror. It is not a fear that the hand of God is going to come down upon His children who are in Christ and judge them relentlessly. What it means is that we should have such a great reverence, such a great respect for God that we should fear to displease Him in any way, shape, or form. David wrote, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever in Psalm 19.9. This is where it all begins. Having a reverence for God. Understanding Him to be the ultimate authority. Alone, sovereign, and completely in control. The Christian life must be led by the fear of the Lord. Again, that respect, that reverence, and the hope that we would not displease Him in our life actions. When I was a, a kid, one of the most scary things that my mom could say to me is, I'm going to tell your dad when he gets home. Everybody loved my dad at work, but when he got home, something happened. My dad was a principal in the city of Chicago for 30 years. Great man, I love him. Just spent some time with him the other day, bringing him more books about Jesus. But when my dad got home, there was a reverence, there was a respect that I have for him. It hasn't dissipated. I still have it for him today. But I knew he was the one that I was accountable to. And I didn't want to displease him. I didn't want to hurt him in any way with what I did. And I was concerned when my mom would say that. 
My mom was a pushover. But my dad, on the other hand, not so much. That same reverence must be found in Christians. Unfortunately, it is not. We have lost that. We have lost that because the church has cheapened grace. Uh, The church doesn't explain love properly anymore either. Two of the greatest components and doctrines of the Christian faith we now use as license for carnality. Well, God loves me so much, He's never going to challenge me or judge me or correct me in any way. Yeah, God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's love. And I'll tell you this too. God loves you so much that He loves you too much to leave you the way He found you. When we talk about grace, that unmerited favor that God has given us through Christ, It is not a license to sin. It is a platform in which we serve Him, that we live for Him, that we glorify Him in our lives. We have lost the fear of the Lord. The next word that we discover in this verse is a word serve. It means to minister or to worship. It is found 15 times in the 24th chapter. It means... To serve God means to fear Him, obey Him, worship only Him. It means to love Him and fix your heart upon Him, obeying Him because you want to do what is right. And you want to do it because you want to do it and not because you have to do it. And that is followed with the word sincerity. Sincerity, the opposite of hypocrisy. But it is interesting to me that sincerity is often challenged not at times of trial or difficulty. Sincerity is challenged at times of prosperity and of blessing. Joshua knew that as God blessed the people and God prospered his people in his land, would they remain as devoted to him as they were before? Would they remain as dependent upon him as they were before? Or would they turn from him? You know, when Christians begin to relax is when I get the most concern. It is because at that moment, it is when we move from that dependence upon God to that independence from God in all that we do. Sincerity, I believe, is challenged at times of prosperity rather than at times of trouble. But then he moves to this incredible word, faithfulness. Serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Let me sum it up for you. Let me give you an in-depth Hebrew word for faithfulness. No matter what. No matter what happens or what occurs or what circumstances I face, or what challenges I face, or what rebuttal I face, or resistance I face, or retribution that I face, or persecution that I face, I'm going to serve the Lord. No matter what. No matter what. And I'm not going to do it in the energy of myself, but in the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit. One quote concerning this word faithfulness. I love what he wrote. Faithfulness means continuing on the last orders God has given you until new ones come. 
Faithfulness is continuing on the last orders that God has given to us until God gives us new ones. And then he challenges them. And it appears that he gives them a choice. He gives them the direction. He gives them the exhortation. Serve God, faithfulness, in sincerity. And then he moves. And then he says, or choose the gods of your forefathers, the gods of Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites, the land in which you are coming. This choice, I will tell you, is no choice at all. All of this pales in comparison. It didn't matter if they embraced any one of those. They would be wrong before the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they would suffer the consequences of it. But what he was also saying at this moment was this. He says, please understand that with these pagan gods comes pagan thinking. Secular ideas that are going to challenge the commandments of God. That's going to challenge the word of God. You cannot just worship these pagan gods benignly. You're going to have to commit to living according to their structure. Doing the acts of worship that they require. So he said, choose. But again, as I tell you, there is no choice here whatsoever. And then he adds something to this that all of us should notice. If it is evil in your eyes, if it doesn't look good to serve God, the God who has brought Abraham out of Haran, the God who has brought Isaac and Jacob from Abraham, the God who brought Joseph and brought us into Egypt and kept us safe, populated us there, and then saw us out of Egypt, if that God doesn't look good to you, then go choose these other gods. If it is evil in your eyes, then go choose these other gods. And what Joshua was doing was this. He was asking them to remember all that their God has done for them. He asked them to remember the heritage, the lineage that they had with the God of all gods. The one true God. The one that had done so many mighty things before them. You choose. And he's asking them to compare and to contrast pros and cons. That's what he is asking them here. We have a similar choice today. We have a secular society that is bearing down upon the church. And with that secular society becomes secular ideologies and philosophies. Paul warned us about the philosophies of this world that contradict the doctrines of God. And he didn't want these philosophies to cheat you that the world has to rob you from what God has and today Christians are torn between secular thinking in many areas and the doctrines of God the teachings of our Lord because obviously in most cases they are constantly butting heads now in many ways we try to reconcile the two. And we find that we cannot do so. That it's like mixing oil and water together. Because we don't serve the God of this world as Christians, do we? 
It is truly the God of this world that is orchestrating and designing and to, is creating what we see and hear and watching develop before our eyes. But we serve the one true God who gave His only begotten Son. He gave us the Holy Spirit after His ascension to live as God has asked us to live, not in ourselves, but in power that He gives us. But then He gave us His Word to speak to us at any time of our life, at any moment, in any trial or any circumstance. The Word of God. And Jesus said, if you will base your life upon my Word, you will stand the storms of life. You'll withstand them. And Paul said, I don't want anything to cheat you. I don't want any of these philosophies of this world to rob you of the foundation that God has given us in the Word of God. We can do it the world's way or we can do it God's way. That is the choice. If you today feel the world has a better answer for you, and your life and is able to provide those answers that haunt you at night, that keep you up, that take you out of your bed in the middle of the night and take you into the other room where you're sitting by yourself and having that moment of pause to consider some of the most complex questions of life. And maybe you've lived some years and you've hoped and waited that those answers would come and they haven't. That's the story of my dad. I came to faith in Christ when I was a senior in high school last year. <laughs> Almost 30 years ago. I, I, I then began to grow as a Christian in a home that I was the only Christian there. My parents were both very well educated. My dad had a prominent position in the Chicago public school system. And from the very first day my mother and father would challenge me on my Christian faith. How can creation be true? Don't you know evolution is the way it all came about? How can you just simply trust God without doing it yourself, making your own life, creating your own life? How can you have such faith in one individual that lived 2,000 years ago who died at the age of 33 when there's all these other religions in the world. And often I didn't have answers to those questions. And my dad and I would often talk and discuss and I would share with him at that time the limited information that I know. And my mom, growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, she thought she was absolutely fine with God that it was perfect just to have some affiliation with the denomination. I said, Mom, it's not what organization you are part of, it's who you know and who knows you, bringing her to the gospel. And my dad would challenge me over and over and over and over and over again. Last year, my mom, after 28 years, came to saving faith in Christ. My dad is on the edge. He is currently reading books on Jesus, one right after another. He has the Bible right next to him. And on Friday, I'm sorry, on Thursday, he told me that the reason he is so interested in Jesus is because the answers never came. And he's 86 years old. What he'd been waiting for never came. 
And he said, what I see in you is what I've always desired. And I said, Dad, it's not me, it's Jesus. Pointing him back to him. My dad sees the relationship that Dina and I have. My dad sees the relationship that Dean and I have with Autumn and says, how is it so that none of the difficulties that you were raised in have come and made themselves apparent in your family? I said, it's because our foundation is built on the rock and that God has brought about these things. And in the light of all of this, let's conclude with this. The statement of Joshua once again. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I can't control anybody else. I can't change anybody else. That's what what he's saying here. But I've determined. I've purposed. As Joshua weighed and considered all that he saw, being the second in command under Moses and then then succeeding after Moses as God called him to lead the people into the promised land. After everything I've seen God do, I cannot deny him and I will not forsake him to embrace the gods and the ideas of the gods of these lands. I won't do it. I can't do it. In Joshua's mind, I have no doubt, God has been so faithful to me, how can I be faithless to him? Over and over and over again, God has heard the cries as I led the people to this place. How can I abandon him? Because he would never abandon me. And I remember when Dean and I sat together and we talked about the foundation of our family, both of us said, how can we deny God in our family when God has brought us to this place? 21 years later, we just celebrated our 21st anniversary. And God is still working. He is still the foundation of our family. And we have experienced trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, storms from above, storms from below, storms from the side. Our house is still standing. Joshua says, it's not that I'm going to serve God and others. I'm going to serve God exclusively. But Joshua knew what was coming. Joshua knew that if the people were not faithful to this, the next generation would be far from God, and that's exactly what happened. The people moved away from God. They embraced the the gods of those lands. God brought about the difficulties that he said he would upon the children of Israel for purpose of correction. The generation after Joshua and his elders and the leaders did not know God and therefore walked away from him and suffered the repercussions of it. As we continue to sterilize our nation of God, I ask you, what is the world putting in its place that is capable of supporting us the way he can? What do you have to offer that God hasn't already provided? And one of the things that is so tragic to me is that when we look at this nation and we're making the decisions that we are making currently today, do they not understand that the freedoms that have been provided for us to allow us to make such decisions were based upon Judeo-Christian principles? Do they not understand that? 
that what allowed us the freedom that we've had were men who wanted to break away from the tyranny of a king, to allow for freedom of religion, to allow people to worship God. And the times that God has seen us through some of the most difficult periods of our 200-some year existence. And now in our times of so-called prosperity, we are saying, we don't care, thank you. You're inhibiting us from enjoying all of the freedoms that we can have. Is it possible to know, is it possible, I should say, that God knows that those freedoms are not going to bring about good things, but difficult things? There's a principle in the Bible that I think we should all be aware of. Whatever you sow is what you reap. I want to conclude with this. At the end of C.H. Spurgeon's sermon on this text, this is what he said to his crowd. When you get home, write down this if you can. As for me, I will serve the Lord. And put your name to it in earnest. Or if that is not your mind, write, As for me, I will serve the ruler of this world. And put your name to it. I long to drive you to the decision. If be God, serve him. If it be the God of this world, serve him. Oh, may the Spirit of God lead you to decide for God and his Christ this very moment. And he shall have the praise forever and ever. Amen. Choose this day in whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody does, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord because family matters.